my name is uh, Bernardo Robles. Time 9.51 in Brussels, 4th of February 2020, raining outside. I find myself with Henry and uh, Marianita. Henry, please. Oh, thanks for introing. Uh, <laughs> at first, I thought it would be interesting to interview software maintainers, but there are a lot of other podcasts that are already doing that. It might be cool to be more interdisciplinary. I think this is the first one where I don't know if we're going to talk about code per se, but we want to talk about maintenance. How do we maintain our lives where we live? How do we think about home, a dwelling place? And I have to say that I'm an architect. I'm a project manager for construction. I've been living in several co-housing projects as well as constructing and conceiving a public space. Uh, but Manita, uh, who is here, Hello. who is a cohabitant of this uh, house, she is an anthropologist. Manita. Hello. Yes, I'm an anthropologist specialized in the urban field. And I'm also interested in listening and talking about dwelling and maintenance. And maybe we can start by where we are here. Mm-hmm. Harry, where, where are we? Where do you guys live? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been staying here for a week now. Mm-hmm. I guess we can talk about how we got here. How do we know each other? So we, mo- we met in October in a conference that took place in Washington. And we were invited to support the Maintainer Street which is a, a network of people uh, trying to promote different fields to exchange. Uh, I was invited because I am co-founder of MAMA, which is a, a practice that tries to put uh, maintenance yeah, as a major point in the conception, production, and caring of uh, buildings. And you, why you were there? I guess someone invited me. I wasn't a speaker, though, so I just attended. Okay, okay. I mean, we call ourselves maintainers in software, mm-hmm. and then there's a conference called the Maintainers. Like, why wouldn't I want to go there? <laughs> and when we were there, we, I met up with some people that were librarians, archivists, people that manage like, buildings, like civil engineers, like all these different people, right? So it's just good to be able to hear from people. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't understand a lot of what they were saying, <laughs> um, and I'm sure the same you know, for, for them, for uh, in our talks, mm-hmm. it's good to start that conversation. I don't know how we ended up meeting, but we, we hung out after the conference. So we had the chance to walk around uh, Washington together. Probably the only museums you have to pay for. So. <laughs> and I said to you, yeah, let's keep in touch. And I invited you to come to to Brussels because I knew there were some interesting conference going on. And, and, and you came. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to sustain open source and then foster. And then, and then you found yourself in Bosch. In Bosch, yeah. What is, what is Bosch is a house situated in the center of uh, Brussels in quite a popular area called Marol in 116 Tanner Street. Rue de Tanner. We've been living uh, here, it will be a year, in, it's a building share by five adults, three kids. We have in the ground floor a space of 170 meters where we have installed a kitchen and we use it daily and we open to others to develop their own activities, always looking for people that they are close to Brussels uh, or close to our habitat and non-for-profit, basically. So, for example, we have people offering doing courses, or people doing yoga, or people doing cooking or just small events. They come from the neighbors or friends or people living uh, nearby. And upstairs, we have two floors. 
five adults and three children plus uh, a guest room where Henry was invited to stay mm. and there's office space. So we, we're living here and what's interesting connected to the topic of maintenance is that we've been, we were looking for a place like this where we could share common spaces between different adults. So this Space had been used and lived by a couple that was having okay. a shop in the ground. Three generations have been um, living at upstairs and working downstairs. And downstairs mm. was a Bosch store. And we got access to this place by negotiating with the new owner. We've been inherit, let's say, we've been getting access to this place when it was still full of objects that didn't belong to us, but to the mm. old family. And the first step was to kind of wait them to empty it and then start to live in. And that's maybe one of the starting point of not only this way of living in a community, but also the idea of trying to invest spaces that otherwise may be left empty for a certain amount of time. And it is one of the basic action to maintain this building, the fact of living in them. Yeah. Maybe one of the arguments that is at stake when you address maintenance and architecture and dwelling is the fact that inhabiting is the best way to maintain a building alive. Yeah, you know, one way of living would be just make a new building. Exactly. And live there, especially if you're moving in. You're not from that area. And I guess what you're saying is that this place maybe would have been abandoned or maybe the whole thing would have got destroyed and then you make a whole new building. But instead you're saying, okay, we want this to still be here and we want to transform this space into a place where we can uh, maintain it. Um, and it's even important when you link the fact of maintaining with the environment, for example, mm -hmm. nowadays, uh, when you're concerned with the environment, the building process is one of the most polluting process. Oh, okay. So... On the planet, we don't need to build more because we already have enough space or at least the space we have, we're not using it fully. Right. So one of the first steps that has to be done mm -hmm. is to claim the fact we should inhabit better what is already built mm -hmm. instead of building other things. Maybe give up some of your standards, some right. of your comfort is connected with the fact of claiming that maintenance is an engaging practice with the environment. Right. And it's a practice because we're not just saying that we care about maintenance, but actually you living in there is one way of... Maintaining. maintaining. Mm. No, it's, it's a building that has around 70 years old. The life expectancy of buildings today, how they are designed, uh, is around 50 years but we are far bypassing that age. And the building that we expected to not be livable anymore, they still are. You know, uh, so we are going beyond so the the life expectancy of the constructed building. So we build up buildings to last fifty years, and in reality, they live one hundred. Mm. You know? So this is the case of this building. Probably when it was conceived and built, they didn't have this in mind. But the building is, uh, the installations are working. Of course, there have been maintenance going on, but there is not uh, structural problems. The, the windows are yeah. single pane. I mean, there are updates that they can, can be done. But basically, it's like a baby <laughs> because you just need more, more attention, mm. more attentive to it. 
I think as, a, as an habitant, we start to develop a different relationship. Mm. Uh, the, the contract that we have with the owner is like we are looking after it. So we are responsible of it. It's not like every time there is a problem, we just call him and he come and he will fix it. So we, as re- people responsible, they just make us aware and attentive of issues that they can take place and we have to resolve them. Also, it's putting us in a very different uh, relationship uh, w- with what is already there, what is mm-hmm. for sure, I'd say, the color of the wall well, is not yeah. what exactly what we wanted or maybe the, the kind of pavement is not what we yeah. expected. But you learn how actually you can deal with those elements also the classical configuration of the house not nowadays but the ability that you have as a dweller to update to change to transform to take care it's a big freedom that we're giving to ourselves because this is not what is happening in most cases in which people are renting spaces so our special condition here is also that we agreed on the fact that we would have a proactive interaction with the building space. We can't transform it completely. It wouldn't make sense for us because it would be an investment that is out of our pocket. We're not going to stay here forever. But we are asked and we are free to interact in a more direct way than we are normally able to do with a rented space. You could say you're giving up freedom or comfort but maybe you're learning to adapt to the current building, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of our modern lives is about, we always get what we want. Oh, I want this to look like this. You can just buy it or you can get a new thing. But here, okay, let's deal with what we have. And at the same time, because you are empowered to care about the house, then you're willing to change things about it. Maybe other people, they don't really think of their house in that way. You might need certain skills to take care of it. But also like the mindset change, right? Of like, oh, I can actually do something about my house. Exactly. We were saying that like a lot of people, they don't even touch the house. Maybe a lot of us treat our houses like a hotel. It's like, mm. you just go there, you sleep, and you go to work or something. Mm. Like you're saying it's like a baby. It feels like a personal mm. relationship, right? At least in the last 50 years, we're not used to be asked to have an active relationship with the environment and with our home. We are more asked to respect what is there. And and, and so we are asked not to interact with our home. That was happening in Europe in the majority of social housing. And the owner is asked to have standard houses that he can put in the market of renting. So this kind of situation are completely at the margin of what we can see nowadays. But how did we arrive here, Bernardo? What, what came before? It was a bigger house. Not so far away, but it was a house built, well, built after a particular political and social movement in here. And they managed to open a seven office building with an undeterminate contract with a small group of militant immigrants in the city center of Brussels. 11 years where 70 people live. That's a lot of people. (laughs) Seven floors, 70 people. Yeah. Very open to many others to to pass by, stay and uh, profit from uh, that sort of uh, common ground. It was a bit like if we would replay our situation here, but in seven floors. Mm. Because each floor had his bathroom, kitchen. We were not allowed to have, for example, private kitchen. 
And then at the ground floor, there was a big, big common space. And it was not only the inhabiting way, but it was the whole structure of this community of 70 people that has to work somehow mm -hmm. and has to be maintained every day. And so we had a lot of meetings, a lot of discussion. Yeah, weekly. And in that case, the diversity of people was incredible. Mm -hmm. I think it would be difficult for us to experience another situation in which we would live with so many different people at the same time. Under yeah, the same because half of them you will never even talk to them in your entire life. Mm -hmm. Like we had people with, with mental issues and with drug problems, but as well elderly people and uh, families, uh, people coming from the upper class, educated. Uh, it was extremely mixed. Mm -hmm. It was a great... <laughs> Like, again, it's very strange to have meetings mm -hmm. when you have such a, <laughs> a spectrum of people coming together to talk about, we have to clean up the staircase, <laughs> you know, and you have all yeah. that people that is going to express themselves when, how things are going, but the, at the same level. I kind of reminded of like a school or college dorm, but completely, that's not the same at all because you might not even talk to the people next to you or even in just normal mm -hmm. apartment, right? You don't even know who your neighbors are. Mm -hmm. But in here, you got to work together to do these mundane tasks. Mm. But I think that even with the roommate situation, you have to figure out, like, who's going to wash the dishes mm. and take out the trash, clean the you know, bathroom. Like, those are all things where you do have to set up some kind of governance mm. structure mm. that might not be so explicit as an actual government, but it's like a certain kind of rules or norms or some way of coordinating, like, who's going to do what without it turning into, like, you need someone else to tell you how to do it. Or you need to pay someone yeah. to do it. Everyone's just volunteering to do this together. Yeah, it takes time that you could be using for work or to look after your family. I think that's what Maria Anita was mentioning about uh, comfort, no? What is comfort? Because all these interactions seem to be pushing us away of what is considered as comfort, comfort. in our society. Yeah. I hear like sugar and fat, there are two things that the body never gets enough of it. And I think comfort is a bit the same. Many people, I don't know, when would we have enough? I mean, my father sits in front of the sofa watching TV. And I think that's for him, like the ultimate, to make when I see him, like, mm, that's not really what I want to do with my life. So I think the home unit, we had constructed housing around two persons, uh, a father and a mother and two kids. Mm -hmm. And that's the nuclear, nuclear family. That's unit, that. Yeah. And, uh, and every nuclear family needs to reproduce uh, Like it needs to be autonomous in the system. They had to clean in the house. In the, they have their own washing machine. Uh, they have their own ways of transport. But now we have car sharing. But I think that maybe that's a good example to how we are reconfiguring, I mean, redefining comfort. That maybe there are more important things than having our own car. You can say, like, what is the purpose of a home? And most of us would say, like, some level of comfort. When I go home, I yeah. want to feel that. Unlike yeah. at work or outside in a public space, having a private space. What experience taught us the fact that actually we are maybe in a moment of society in which this idea of comfort is change, changing because we understand that comfort made us isolated. Mm. There is something lacking in this community. I mean, it's always complicated to share. Mm. It's always complicated to get organized. It's always complicated to coordinate. Mm -hmm. But is what make us human, social animals. Yeah. I guess that's one aspect of it. This kind of collective housing, which is maybe better than community, because collective housing are giving you another kind of comfort, which is the fact of being part of 
a group mm-hmm. and uh, the group can be very energy taking but it is definitely something that is connected with giving you the comfort of knowing where you belong yeah maybe not belonging in a sense of identity but the, the fact of existing with others mm. when we had people that clean our house make our garden look after our children yeah. come to fix the leaking in our tap mm-hmm. those are things that are pushing us towards the definition of comfort that we have today but is pushing us away from layers of understanding our close environment. Mm. That's a bit strange, no? You're paying people, which is good in some ways, but then you kind of take everything for granted. Mm-hmm. So you kind of don't appreciate even how hard it is to do these things because you don't do it yourself, right? I think a lot of times you learn through experience. That kind of makes me think it almost like kills your sense of curiosity, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're learning If you like it, you'll want to learn about it more. If you did learn how to cook, if you start watching YouTube or reading books and actually experimenting in terms of cooking, then if you go out to eat, that's like something you turn off on your brain. Or like how do the systems in your house work, like the plumbing or electricity? The materials that you are using, like what happens when you don't get tomatoes? If I want to tie it back to coding, just one point about that is just... Oh no, come on. <laughs> yeah, not again. I love it. This is related to using open source and not mm-hmm. understanding how it works or not giving back. It's good to have a level of abstraction where it's like, I don't need to know how it works. But at some point, it kind of prevents you from understanding the world better. It's kind of like knowing how to drive a car versus knowing how to fix a car or understand mm. how it works. I mean, for the majority of people, yeah, you don't have to know. But then once it breaks, now you're reliant on And not that we have to do everything ourselves, but I think there's a certain sense of freedom when you Definitely. do know how to do mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that... There is a difference between freedom and independency and modernity have as an, an ideology of progress and of definitely of comfort have been pushing us to think that the best is to get rid of problems, cooking, yeah, outsource whatever you can outsource. And actually this is definitely the opposite. This makes you so depending on resources with which you can pay this outsourcing process that actually you become much more dependent. So I think that's another empowering process connected with the idea of being able to maintain things that you need or just understand what's behind and learn again to take care directly of certain things. Recently, we had the right to repair a proof in Mm -hmm. Europe. I know that in Canada and the States, it's already there. This is meant to change the way we produce electronics and the way users interact with electronics. Mm. So I think it's something like they have to provide the manuals that allow you to understand the objects and have the elements that allow you to replace during 10 mm. years those objects, mm. which is funny that they, they do that now, no? but <laughs> giving you like guidelines to the inside of something that mm. you own, basically. So that they are helping you to understand it better. Mm-hmm. That is something that they didn't allow you to do before. I have this quote uh, from a friend. Well, many, many people go through this situation. They call an specialist. And the first thing that the specialist said, first of all, mm-hmm. do not touch it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think with home, it's, it's a bit the same. You, know? you, you have all these elements and we have very little knowledge to interact mm-hmm. with it. It's, it's funny how architects, we are so focused in the 
Renissage. How do you say that in opening? In the opening of a new building. Yeah, yeah, when you say images of buildings, you know, they don't show you the building in 30 years. They show you the buildings brand new, shiny. That will last for one day. <laughs> if, it, if it, it will exist, it will exist okay. only for one day. Yeah. yeah. So an architect now, they focus so much in that early age of the building and that condition, how the buildings are conceived. So we will be looking more for buildings that actually need to be cared of. And we had this in consideration during the conception process, making more easily those buildings to last. Yeah, in the practice and belief of talking about the professional part of the story, mm-hmm. I think one aim is to em- empower the dwellers, actually, mm-hmm. in order to make them understanding the system in which they're living and to give them the tools and the knowledge to interact with it. And this is what is happening in other fields with technology, but is, is, it is not happening with the built environment. It's a paradoxical, but you have some starting experience that in a public space with the help of people. But if, it would be even more evident if we were talking about housing, because you own or you rent a space to leave it is to understand how it works and we're completely passive at the moment about mm-hmm. that and to go back to coding <laughs> no, no, Mary, no. <laughs> <laughs> which i'm learning so many things on a topic that it's completely unknown for me but i think it, it is exactly the same we don't know how much maintenance there is behind it mm-hmm. and that's exactly the same for architecture and housing We deny completely the dimension of taking care of the space we live in a daily scale. We don't make it visible. We don't look for it, depending on if we are a planner or if we are just citizen. So it's this blurry part of life on which we all depend. And so I guess it's exactly like coding, the idea of making clear that there are maintainers behind all that. We should all acknowledge this, that we produce things, we produce different goods, we produce different tools that are part of our everyday life, but actually they need to be maintained. And there are people doing this every day and we don't know that. We just pretend that time is like still, I guess, right? The coding thing is interesting because I think digital makes you feel like it will last forever. Mm-hmm. But we have this concept of bit rot. Like, you know, I'm talking about like bits, binary. Code can rot too. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the code's still there, but you know, it's more metaphorical where it's like the people that work on that code will over time not know how it works. The typical example is you look at this code and like, who wrote this? This is really weird. And then you look at it and it's like, oh, I wrote it like a year ago. <laughs> um, or they changed their job or they retired and they weren't <clears throat> able to pass down the knowledge to other people. And that's why I kind of say that code becomes archaeology. You're trying <clears throat> to like figure out the, the bones of the code and trying to figure out like, why did they write this? <clears throat> and so I think as our society becomes more technological, we still think that The code's going to save us, that it's all timeless. But we need to look to the physical and be like, okay, everything will decay. Everything will die. 
And maybe you just need to acknowledge that life cycle, mm-hmm. like life, death, mm-hmm. and this process of restoring. So I have a question for you because this idea of um, restoring, mm. I mean, I think the code question can learn from the architectural one mm. in this aspect of knowledge that is lost. So that that's what we face with buildings that have been constructed hundreds and thousands of years ago. And then we have this archaeological approach, definitely, because we don't have anymore even buildings constructed 100 years ago, which is nothing. For generation, we lost the knowledge, but we want to preserve the building. So we have this process of heritage. We want to value the heritage, but we forgot to conserve and maintain the practice. So now in architecture, you have somehow a renewal of this kind of old practice of construction. So I think maybe coding can look at what's happening there. And I don't know, a parallel can be. But my question is for you, Henry, do you have in the field of coding, do you have sometimes this impression that before it was better? Are you already there? I mean, did you already get at the moment in which you say, ah, but actually the old way of coding had something that now we, we're mm. losing and at the reverse, the opposite. Are you in a progress mm. mind frame? Are you always improving? This idea that what is coming after is going to be better, better or more performant? That is a really good question. I don't know. I wonder if it's controversial to say it's no, mm. but... I mean, you could say, maybe this is true of a lot of things. It's, yes, it's better in certain ways and worse in other ways. I even remember there was a talk that I saw. People are discovering papers that people have written from a long time ago and seeing how they were doing programming. Oh, we went in this other direction Mm -hmm. and we need to go back to this other thing. People are making new programming languages all the time. It's kind of hard to say... And also there are more and more people becoming programmers, but that doesn't mean those new programmers are not just thinking about programming itself as much. They might be just the practitioners where they're writing the code and they don't really think about why. I mean, it's true for anything, right? It's like when you get started, you're just doing it. And then eventually you're like, oh, why am I doing it this way? Maybe we start questioning, you start thinking. Of course, there's that momentum too, where it's kind of hard to get everybody to just be like, let's stop and go back. All all the other people are trying to push the edges. I feel like I could go in a lot of different directions for this. Yeah. In some ways, we are making it more complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could say that's a bad thing because it's making it harder for new people to get involved. Mm -hmm. We keep uh, going back to this idea of abstraction. It's a term of adding layers. So like abstraction can be a good thing because it allows you to focus on the thing that you care about without caring about the other things. But of course, that's just a lens on which to view things. So kind of like, oh, I don't need to know how the car works. I can just know how to drive it. Perfect example of with code is every dependency I add, I don't need to know how this thing works because someone else wrote the code to do it. And then that person wrote some code that depends on that, that said, I don't even know how to do that. And now you have this giant tree. We call a tree of dependencies that mm-hmm. goes all the way down. You don't even know all the things that you're using. You just know one level down, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't even know that. You could say that is like a house of cards kind of thing. 
I mean, that's the cynical view. The other view would be, well, isn't it great that I don't have to rewrite everything? Lego blocks, I can just use what other people have done. And I can just focus on what I think is important. Maybe I just want to make a website or make an app. I don't want to learn how to make all this other stuff that was there. So that, that would be like a positive way of looking at it. All these people have made important things that I can use, especially if it's open source. I don't have to make it myself. I don't have to start over from scratch. But the, the trade-off is that you don't understand it. So then if there's a problem, how are you going to figure it out? Mm-hmm. You're going to ask that person. If you have to do everything from scratch, then you're going to understand everything. Mm-hmm. But you might not be able to, quote unquote, go as far. But what does it mean to like go as far? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a complicated question. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered that. I have another question, actually. For Henry, too. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Sorry, Henry. When we were talking about this sort of invisible labor, I think in more domestic context or architecture, they come from aesthetic perception. That means when you are, for instance, renovating a building, you will cover this renovation with a textile, with a fabric, instead of maybe putting uh, in front the, the work that is being done to keep this healthy. This happened with historical buildings. And in home, is related to the tasks that they are like uh, clean people is not proud of uh, cleaning your house you know or things that can have like social negative perception and i think that's partially why we have this certain shame that comes with it and we try to keep it hidden as if those things are not really taking place Mm. so this social perception i think greatly has a lot of responsibility uh, in how we approach the subject and i wonder because the cleaning ladies they have low wages no but software people, they have big layers. So they, both of them, they're invisible, but they find themselves in completely different sides of the economical spectrum. So I wonder, do you think that there's a part of the world of coding that comes with shame? What is responsible of not valorizing those processes, basically? So you're saying that like when you're making buildings, you put a picture of what the building will look like? Like Afterwards. I'm talking about a historical building, a building that has Um, been there for 200 years. So today you have been in the Grand Place, the the major touristic attraction here in Brussels. And one of the buildings, it was covering with a a scaffolding. Mm -hmm. And in front of this scaffolding, there is the printed version of the building that is behind. So this is basically to sort of camouflage that there is a process of looking after this building. Right. We don't want the tourists to understand that this is a, pro- a human process. We, we don't want to make the picture disturb instead of saying this is actually part of the of the building itself. It's, it's architecture. It's part of the architecture too. Right. We want to make it look like it's always clean. Always new, forever new. Yeah. That's an age. This is timeless. This is related to like more the how a building looks like. How a building learns. Yeah. And and the other one is more related to how we hide. Everyone puts all their stuff in like a closet or something, right? Just like, yeah. Whenever we have kids coming, we will arrange the house yeah. very quickly because there are things that we are not proud of. I don't know if we have to be proud or not, but it's sort of hiding what, what it says about us hiding this mundane task. And I wonder if coding, there are things like that. Yeah, it's good to think about. Are there things like that? I mean, there are definitely tasks that you might consider like cleaning. We have a term called refactor, which is where you want to change the code that it's more easily understood. One example is like when you're writing your code, you have names for your code. 
And so you could name every name, we call them variables, like A, B, C or something. Or you could describe like, oh, this is the number of wheels on a car or something. Like that would be more descriptive than just saying it's A, like I, I don't, what is A, right? So refactoring is a process of structuring your code, essentially cleaning your room. So it's more organized, but the code doesn't do anything different. So if you execute the code again, it's supposed to do the same thing. So it's literally just cleaning your room. Mm -hmm. So that's a task where it doesn't make you any more money. It was working before, right? You didn't change the output of the code. All you did was organize it. So it's like a long-term task. Mm -hmm. In the long run, if you don't do that, then it's just going to mm -hmm. be messy. You have this deadline. Every time you add a feature, it's like a Frankenstein. You're like adding more and more parts to it that probably don't interact with each other in a way that makes sense. And so refactoring tasks help you to kind of clean up stuff. I think that depending on your personality, though, some people like doing those things. I like doing stuff like that, like fixing bugs or, you know, just like cleaning up stuff rather than adding the features. Some people like writing new code from scratch. Other people like modifying existing code. But if you're talking about open source and like covering up stuff, well, we're doing everything in open. So I guess in some sense, part of the whole point is that I want people to know that we are working on it in progress in the mm -hmm. open. And you're trying to overcome, I guess, the sort of shame that you might get. When you're first getting involved in open source, you're really scared because you're like, well, hundreds of people can see it. It's all in the open. And then once you're the maintainer, you're like, I want everyone to see it because I want them to know that we're figuring it out too. Even though we're the expert, we're still figuring it out as well. I want that to be learning in public sort of thing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess open source is actually making the opposite, making the maintenance of it the front line. By exposing all these. I think that that's where we have to talk about like boundaries and stuff. But, you know, we don't allow anyone to contribute uh, whatever they want. You know, we, someone has mm -hmm. to approve the change. Mm -hmm. Anyone can make a change, like a request to make mm -hmm. a change. But someone has to kind of yeah. supervise. If everyone just was allowed to do whatever they want, then we kind of need someone to understand the whole system. Be like, oh, does this fit into the way that this thing works? Like the philosophy or the mental model or the theory behind this thing. Maybe we ask them to change their change so that it fits better to, with how we're thinking about it. Or maybe we need to think about it differently. Everyone's coming in with their own view on how things work. Maybe they don't have a lot of experience, but talking about it does help all of us to better think about how do we think about these things. Mm, it's like a co-housing. A question I was going to ask, what was your vision for the future of this space? And how long did you stay at the other place? So it means it might be like three, three and a half, and for me, a little bit less. That experience lasts for 11 years, and it's exceptional in Brussels. This kind of autonomous, self-organized community in a, occupying a building and claiming the legality of it. So it was a very, very interesting and exceptional experience. But before coming here, we didn't want to go again into such a big, big community organization, but we were thinking about more around like 20 people and it didn't happen. We didn't manage to convince mainly public owners that we could occupy some available buildings. So... We went to see this private owner that we knew and we proposed him what we're doing now here in Bosch. So we have an agreement for two years. Mm -hmm. 
we hope we will manage to extend a little bit because and we didn't talk about time but time is what replaces money in all this story so you take the time to do things yourself which means that you invest time instead of investing money outsourcing as we said before so time is an important element we can't do all these efforts for let's say few months occupation of a building you know what we can say is that for the next year we want this to be running in a more smooth way because it will be the second year we have this ground floor that we want to be available for the neighborhood to be used we prioritize the idea of a neighborhood space and it takes time it takes time to be known it takes time to be identified it takes time to get in contact with people so it's all a matter of time actually it's not a question of big struggle it's a question of being patient we've been targeting uh, um, activities that we wanted to be intergenerational generational because we have children and this is something very very important for us it goes in the same direction of the thing we said before but we wanted this space to be a space dedicated to domestic action and practices of which we forget the the collective dimension you know when you clean your room as you said when you wash your cloth or when you clean up or when you have some holes in your socks or whatever when you have to clean your shoes these are actions through which we maintain our own goods and our environment and the things that surround us and we forget to do them or we forget that they can be collectively done and it's much more fun and it's much more mm. interesting because each of us has his own techniques and we can learn from each other this was one of the main aim of what we wanted to propose downstairs there was also the idea that of course other people could come with their own needs and their own ideas to use the space downstairs but there was this idea of putting energy into revalorize give a new value of, to this kind of action that we tend to marginalize in our own life you know nobody's happy about having to repair socks or to mm. clean up but they can be moment of talk moment of exchange moment of celebration moment of being together moment of learning so that's again something connected with maintenance with empowering with reestablish relationship um, and kin somehow So we can just hope that all this is going to be running maybe with a little bit less of our efforts but just because we also want to maybe diversify things now we start to be able to count on other people doing yoga doing sewing classes doing parties people mm-hmm. come and propose oh let's do crepe let's do pancakes because it's the day of the pancakes so that's i think what we we hope for the future and maybe the next step would be when we will have to move maybe that should be a more stable move i don't know i don't know do you want to make stable move <laughs> i think for me be a good example of a mm-hmm. practice how this habitat how this shared domestic space is an added value to the cities and makes try to make sure that public figures as well as private they see the value on it and they make more easy to other initiative to take place around the city i think there are already things going on eh? but normally this It's a, it's a lot of focus, semi-professional environments. It's not so much of 
people self-managing themselves. Mm. Or cultural centers or sports centers or arts activities. Right. It's less about self-managing spaces that are also open to the public. Kind of just go in and come out. Like a club. Yeah. Replace a bit the, the owner. No? Things are far more formalized. So mm. for us, again, this informal aspect is important. We, we talked about before this, but I was going to ask about like, how do you fund the space? So this is free for people to use. They can sign up to do like, you know, sewing. They don't have to like pay. You're not asking for anything, right? They have not asked for any money. We have workshops where they suggest a payment. For example, yoga. Yoga says you have to pay minimum one euro. So it's like, pay what you want then. Okay. Yeah. 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 And we had self-defense courses that was two different days in, in two weeks. They suggested 10 euros. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to like grow this thing into like... Mm. No, I mean, this is definitely not for profit. Right. For us, the objective of growing is more like, okay, we want people to benefit from it, but there is not a business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are, the, 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 the dwellers are paying a rent. Yeah. So we do pay a rent to the owner. And in this rent, we negotiate the fact that it had to be the lowest we can. Mm-hmm. I mean, the lowest he can. He can. <laughs> <laughs> because we knew we were going to invest a lot of time in the management of the downstairs space. Right. So this was the idea. So we said, okay, we want to live in the first and second floor. We want to do a community neighborhood space downstairs. This will take us time. We want that to be for free. Mm-hmm. So our rent must be the lowest we can. Yeah. And that's also a way to involve the owner as a partner somehow in this vision of a common space that is open to the neighborhood. And then the activities that we host can suggest a, a small price. Mm-hmm. And that's the other important thing that maybe is very different from the U.S., but we managed to have some little budget from the municipality because we proposed our idea, our project for the downstairs, and they found it interesting. And there was a call for citizen initiatives that are promoting the neighborhood life. So we apply and they gave us a small budget that we can use for the different atelier, the different workshop. So you can see that there are some kind of work we've done in converging interests somehow. The interest of the owner in maintaining this place, the interest of neighbors in having this place, our own interest in renting uh, a space with a small rent and having these activities downstairs and uh, also the interest of the city hall that is looking for initiatives of this kind. So we can see that things are moving in that sense, but we were the only dwellers proposing a domestic space, Mm -hmm. for example. The other initiatives were more like sport or arts or culture or whatever. We were the only one proposing to share our own they were NGOs or other form of officialized group. So we were the only one not having this kind of structure. Yeah. I like how on the windows outside, you're writing down mm. you know, what are the activities. It's just like for local people that live here and they mm. can just see it. 
I mean, you don't have to, there's no social media. That, that is maybe interesting for the podcast decision that we made. It was very spontaneous, but at the end, we claim it somehow. The fact that we would not use. So the idea was that we would promote our activities only using the windows of the space. Because this for us was a way to be more or less sure that we would address people of the neighborhood. Mm. Of course, we also sometimes send emails. Thanks for coming, Henry. It was super nice to have you around. And yeah, thanks for inviting me. I mean, I stay hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say, oh, you could go to some other city and, or live in a hotel. I saw a lot of activities that were being done. The sewing, people walking in, people just looking at the windows. And also just like when we were walking down the street and then you just met like five different people that you knew. You just actually are a part of the community. No, you know, so there's many big impacts. So when, when are you coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I guess next year. <laughs>